I'm Father Mitch Paco, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture and sacred apostolic tradition. Now, today we will be looking at more of the trials of Jesus before Jewish and Roman political leaders, especially the Roman ones, but Jewish too. And we'll examine how the sex abuse crisis has often become an occasion of politicizing accusations against clergy. All this leads to the questions of what type of justice were the Jewish and Roman courts serving in the case of Jesus Christ. But also the question, are modern day clergy committing themselves to serve Jesus Christ or are they serving themselves and their appetites? This is a question for uh, clergy as well as any other Christian. It's a very important thing. Now, a uh, couple things. Uh, of course, we love to have your questions and comments, uh, especially if they're related to today's topic. Uh, we'd like to have you be part of the program by calling us during the live show, which is Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call us at 1-800-221-9460. That's in North America. 1-800-221-9460. If you're outside North America, that won't work, but you can still call in. The number is country code 1, area code 205 1-205-271-2980. Or you can contact us through email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. You can also follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. We're happy to have you do that. So, remember we are going through uh, my book. It's called Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can still get that at EWTN's religious catalog. Just go to our website, EWTNRC.com. And at EWTNRC.com, it is item 81098. If you already are following with us, we are starting today's discussion on page 122. Now, here is where the trial changes toward the political uh, trials. Um, we note that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish assembly, the Jewish leaders' assembly, with Pharisees and Sadducees, both in it, both parties, they had condemned Jesus to death. But they looked for authority to execute Jesus from the Roman government. The Roman procurator was the Roman official in charge of Judea province. And it wasn't a whole province, it was just an area. There'd be a governor in charge of the province, which was in Syria. 
And Judea was a separate little territory within the uh, province of uh, Syria. And it says in Luke 23, verse 1, then the whole company of the Sanhedrin arose and brought him, that is Jesus, before Pilate. So that's what they do. Now, it's very interesting when you look at this in Luke 23, verse 2, that they change the accusation. It says there, and they began, it really is a new beginning. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man perverting our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, they, they would have understood the word Christ, uh, Christ in Greek, Christos, uh, if they were speaking Greek to Pontius Pilate, means the anointed one. It translates the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. Um, and, uh, but, you know, in Greek, Christos, um, Christ means anointed one. They would see that. And it's something that they you know, had used as a way to understand his political kingship. Now, Notice how different this is from the accusation in the preceding chapter, in Luke 22, verse 70. They all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. So in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and Sadducees were accusing him of blasphemy and claiming to be the son of God. Now when they go to Pontius Pilate, the procurator, they change the accusation and they accuse him of being a political kind of leader. And they use the word Christ as a way to point to a political nature of him as someone that... Um, was anointed the way a king would be anointed. So that is one of the things going on. And then, just as in our Lord's trial before the Sanhedrin, where false witnesses were brought in and saying that destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it and all, now they are falsely accusing Jesus and saying the opposite of what he actually said by claiming that he forbids us to give tribute to Caesar. That's not what our Lord had said. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you look at Luke 20, verse 25, Jesus had said to the crowd, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He wasn't against paying taxes. As a matter of fact, it's kind of a trick because he said, What's the, what's the coin? Show me the coin you pay the tax. And whose head is on it? Well, it was Caesar's head. That there was, and you find those coins. You can see them in museums if you go around. And it's as a picture of Caesar's head, Caesar Augustus. And so he said, well, that belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him. You know, and uh, this was 
the, the kind of thing that he had gotten around their trap. But even though he had escaped their verbal trap, they were making uh, false accusations against him. This points that not only are they willing to change the nature of the accusation by making it political instead of religious, and they were willing to lie to, about him because they wanted to do anything they could to get rid of him. These leaders were following the principle that the end justifies the means. Getting rid of Jesus is the most important thing, and whatever it takes to get rid of him, we'll do it, just so long as he's gone. Now, this is something that we uh, should pay attention to uh, because one of the points I'd like us to consider is that on a number of levels, the terrible situation of the sex abuse scandal had political elements brought into it. Ultimately, this is a personal set of, uh, a set of personal sins. These are grievously wrong. They're also crimes. These are the, you know, for adults to seduce minors, or even if the minor seduces the adult, it's wrong for the adult to be involved with the minor. That's just the way it is. Now, what are some examples of the politicization? According to the John Jay report, 81% of the minors who had been abused by Catholic clergy were adolescent males. Very few were small children. Uh, about uh, the majority of the other uh, children were uh, females. So you have that. And this has become a political battle about whether the, the clergy are homosexuals uh, and e experts, you know, are trying to, it, on both sides of the issue, get into this, and they try to see that the abuse of adolescent minors is a homosexual issue. That went on. Some people refused to admit that fact because identifying the homosexual nature of 81% of the child abuse or abuse of minors uh, was a homosexual act. And others then would say, well, see, it's, the problem is homosexual priests, um, and they use that as a way to um, deal with, you know, getting rid of homosexuals within the clergy. And the this is a political approach to the issue. Um, and this is something that we just have to realize. The majority of those who have same-sex attraction do not abuse minors. But when minors were abused, the great majority of them were abusing same-sex uh, adolescents. And you just have to take a look at the facts and try to deal with that rather than make 
statements beyond the data about the nature of homosexual acts and stuff. Also, we have to um, uh, pay attention to something else, that uh, the majority of clergy did not engage in this, the, that kind of abuse of minors. That didn't happen. It was about 3%, which is too much. I, you know, I'm not trying to minimize it, but it's, you know, something that was um, a smaller percentage of the clergy did that than the percentage of, say, medical doctors abusing uh, minors or certainly public school teachers. Um, you know, all, all this, uh, we, we have to uh, take a look and see that this is a society-wide issue, uh, but the fact that clergy did it is a serious problem for the church and has to be addressed, but you try to you know, keep it before, you know, to the facts. Also, we have to bring the issue of any kind of sexual abuse, whether it is with uh, minors or whether it is with adults. Consent, consenting adults, whether it is heterosexual or homosexual, in any of those cases, you, we have to then go beyond the politics of our times and understand this issue in terms of the moral and spiritual uh, formation of the seminarians and clergy so that this is addressed. And I, by the way, I would be um, very happy to, to say that these moral and spiritual concerns about, you know, engaging in uh, sexual relationships by clergy is being addressed vigorously. And that's part of the reason that the number of cases has gone down so so radically. But, you know, that training has to be there so that a priest who takes a vow of celibacy or of chastity, if he's in a religious order, understands that chastity not just as a giving up of sexual relations, but understands the way in which this should affect me spiritually and my union with Christ, but also affect me psychologically. There are psych psychological as well as spiritual and certainly physical issues that all have to be addressed and formation to help integrate the spiritual life, the moral life, and physical life of the, uh, the, the clergy and the seminarians is necessary as a component for training so that when they take their vows, they make a commitment, uh, a, an absolute commitment to live a chaste life and a holy life of service so that, you know, um, you don't reject and, and deny that sexuality is part of who you are, but rather the creative gift of human sexuality 
gets rechanneled by the celibate towards service of God and other people. That instead of bringing it to your own desires and or felt needs, you rechannel this towards service and giving of yourself the way that married people have to grow in their understanding of how to live marital life and that the creative energy and creative power of human sexuality is oriented towards building up your family. This is very, very important. So these are some of the things that we ought to consider. Um, you know, remembering the words of Jesus our Lord, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That principle can, should, and must underlie the commitment to celibacy. How do I serve and give myself? Okay? Uh, politicizing it uh, and making it about the hot-button issues of homosexuality and all this stuff uh, can be a distraction away from dealing with the importance of growing closer to Christ through celibacy the way married people come closer to Christ through their marital love. Now, in, that, in the context of all this, you know, they're bringing Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is uh, a known figure. He is mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus and... In addition to that resource, a, an inscription, a stone inscription with Pontius Pilate's name on it was discovered in the city of Caesarea Maritima uh, on the coast of modern-day Israel. Uh, that's where he served. It's a dedicating uh, plaque. So he's a well-known figure. And what Pete Pilate then when he hears these very politicized accusations against Jesus, he asks him directly, um, are you the king of the Jews? And notice how he says the same, gives the same answer as he had given back in Luke 22, 7. You have said so. You know, he's not asserting this. Pilate said this. And just like in the Sanhedrin, they said, tell us, we jury about the living God. Tell us, are you the son of God? And he says, you say that I am. He is letting them do the talking. And when Pilate sees this, he recognizes very quickly it is a false Try, uh, 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 accusation, uh, a false statement about him. And, um, you know, this is where he knows that this is um, something that can't be promoted. So he says, I find no crime in this man. That's what he says to the chief priests and the multitudes. Now, 
this is something that very much uh, we uh, need to take a look at, but I think we'll take a break at this point and we'll see how Jesus you know, responds to Pilate. Uh, so let's, let's make sure that we uh, come back and look at Pilate and Jesus' um, interaction and take a little bit deeper view into this trial. So please stay with us. Starting to take a look at the trial of Jesus by Pilate, who had asked if he was the king of the Jews, and Jesus said, you have said so. But I'd like to go now to another part of the scene, according to the Gospel of St. John. St. John actually develops this point of the trial a bit more detailed way then do the first three Gospels. So let's take a look at that. Uh, first, um, he wants to emphasize how Jesus, who is the true king of the Jews, is being judged by Pilate and rejected by his own people. So we see here in John 18, verse 34, that you know, Pilate had called Jesus away from the crowd. He had gone away from the crowd, went for a more private conversation inside the Roman Praetorium, this official section of the, the fort, uh, Antonia. And Pilate, um, when, when he asked if you're the king of the Jews, Jesus responded, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And, you know, at this point, Pilate, you know, identifies the Jewish people as the source of the accusation. He simply wants Jesus to explain what he had done to evoke such accusations. You know, why would, he wants to know if this is a false statement. Why are they saying this to you? I, normally, um, the subject peoples, in this case the Jewish people, would be defending their own folks against Roman accusations. But this is something that we then see as is typical of John's gospel. Jesus takes the conversation to deeper levels uh, throughout the Gospel of John, when our Lord engages in dialogue, he doesn't just give, you know, parables and, and other teachings. He engages in dialogues in John's Gospel. 
and it is always meant to take you to a deeper understanding. So we see here in verse 36, John chapter 18, verse 36, um, you know, Jesus said, my kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingship is not from the world. So this is a very important statement. He's not, he's a king, but not one that the people are going to be getting into political engagement over and arguing about politically. So Pilate then takes that bait and Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus, just like in Luke, says, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So this is going to be something that marks a person, characterizes people. Listening to Jesus... And it means that you are a lover of truth. If you don't listen to him, you don't love the truth. Now, in the face of that, Pilate has to deal with a basic choice. Is he going to be of the truth or not? And he skirts over it. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, he means that cynically. Pilate, I wouldn't call him the patron saint, but he would be the ideological patron of all cynics and relativists. Pilate is their man when he says what is truth. That cynicism, in the, well, as he stands before Jesus, who is the truth? Remember John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth in the life, as he stands before truth personified, he asks, what is truth? When he should have been asking, who is truth? And he missed it. So after he had said this, in his cynicism and relativism, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no crime in him, just as we had seen in Luke. And this is where, as far as the politics can go. Now, let's go back to Luke. And we see something that uh, in, verse, in Luke 23, verse 5, where uh, the people were urgently insisting on Jesus being a dangerous person. And they, he said, Luke writes, they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Well, so they're trying to make the case, you've got to judge him. And Pilate is looking for a way out. This is what politicians do. I mean, it's... When we see politicians trying to skirt responsibility for what they do, remember that this is not new. 
they have been doing this for a long time. And that's exactly what he does. So since he finds out that he was from Galilee, this is a way to get rid of Jesus. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard this, he, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Now, just a little bit of background. Herod the Great, who had been ruling when Jesus was born, died in 4 BC. His kingdom was divided among his three sons, each of them given the title Tetrarch, which means ruler of a fourth, even though there were three of them. And one of those sons, um, Herod Archelaus, lost his position. So um, uh, Herod Antipas became the, um, uh, the, the brother that took over up in the north. So he had the region of Galilee and Perea, which is on the other side of the Jordan. In fact, you can still go see the ruins of Herod's palace on the, on the Jordanian side in the kingdom of Jordan. It's a great place to go see. That's where John the Baptist was baptized at Makawar. It's called today in Arabic, Makaris in uh, uh, Greek. And he was in town and he ruled Galilee. Therefore, you know, Pilate says, yeah, oh, not my jurisdiction. You take this case and sends him over there. And if Jesus was claiming to be a king, that would affect Herod, not Pilate. Uh, he's trying to be king of Galilee. So, yeah, you, you take care of this. So he goes. And Herod, in verse 8, it, it points out, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see Jesus because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done, done by him. So looking to see a miracle. Now, this is not the first time we hear about that. Back in Luke chapter 9, verses 7 to 9, he had heard about this. It's, it's, in fact, we'll read that in uh, Luke 9, verse 7. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets had arisen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So early in the gospel, Herod Antipas wanted to see Jesus and see some miracles. This is his opportunity. And the problem for as far as Herod is concerned is that Jesus is silent. He doesn't answer any of Herod's questions, doesn't respond to him, and he does not do a miracle. Herod would have let him go, but that's not why Jesus is there. So at that point, we see now for the third time, soldiers mock Jesus. 
Herod and his soldiers turned against him, treating Jesus with contempt. And they arrayed him in glorious, you know, gorgeous apparel and sent him back. And even though the, um, uh, the, the Pharisees had been, and the Sadducees had been accusing him, he sent Jesus back to Pilate. And interestingly enough, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they'd been at enmity with each other. They showed each other respect uh, by sending them back and forth. But, um, you know, they don't come to respect Jesus. That doesn't happen. They just respect each other. And that's uh, an important thing, I'm sure. Uh, but Jesus is the one who is left in the lurch. Now, we will take a look at the next stage, the, the second time that Jesus appears before Pilate. We'll look at that next week but at least to start to see some of these issues in these, these first two political trials, and then we'll take a look at the third and final political trial uh, next week. I think it'd be a good idea for us to take a look at some of your questions. Let's start off here with a question from Lou in Queens, New York. Father Mitch, Zechariah prophesied Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Although Judas had free will, it appears that Judas's fate was sealed. Specifically, Satan entered Judas during the Last Supper. Isn't it possible that Judas, being demonically possessed, wasn't able to profess repentance? Lou in Queens, New York. A couple things, Lou. Um, First of all, very, the, the, when you look at the prophets as a whole, they would prophesy a variety of events. They would tell people, this is what's going to happen to you. They said it in order to let you know that you don't have to follow this. See, that's a, uh, it would be a false understanding of the prophets that if Israel would listen to the prophets, then the bad things they said would happen would not happen. Let me give you an example of that. When um, you, you had Jonah prophesy three days more and Nineveh will be destroyed, what happened? The people of Nineveh repented all the way from the king down to even the cows wore sackcloth and ashes and fasted for three days. So everybody repented and the prophecy did not happen. Now Jonah was uh, upset. He said, I wanted to see them destroyed. I knew you'd be merciful. But they listened to Jonah's prophecy and they repented and then the disaster did not happen. That's very important to note. Just because Zechariah had prophesied 
Judas would betray Jesus. It was listed there, and he could have said, no, I am not going to betray Jesus. I will not fulfill this prophecy, and I will repent. That's one thing. But he didn't, he didn't do that. Secondly, remember what we've said before about Judas. He had been stealing for some time. He had been stealing from the common purse well before the betrayal. And so he had built a habit of sin and he made himself liable to being under Satan's influence. And then it especially was the case when he asked for money to betray Jesus. That was a choice on his part. He wasn't possessed. He was tempted and gave in to the temptation and then did not turn away from it. Thirdly, at the Last Supper, Jesus had warned him that, you know, woe to the man who does this. It would be better that he weren't born. And he lied directly to Jesus. He had responsibility for being a thief and for lying to Jesus to his face and for going ahead with this terrible deed. And therefore, he was responsible. Even though Satan had entered into him, it, he entered because Judas had made the decisions to do that which was wrong. Stealing, seeking money as a bribe, betraying Jesus, lying to Jesus, one sin after another. And that just made it more and more difficult for him to not sin. That's the flat reality, okay? All right, and then uh, we have an email from Maureen, also in the great state of New York said, Father Mitch, what would happen to a priest if he went to confession and confessed the abuse of a child? What is the procedure now? Well, first of all, the confessor cannot reveal what he heard in confession. What the confessor can do is tell such a priest, you need to go tell the bishop or your superior. You need to go and take responsibility for this and deal with it. Now, he cannot make that a condition of the penance, but he can talk to him and, and counsel him in that regard. If he doesn't uh, follow up on that, um, the, pen, the, the confessor can't do anything about it. Um, but... You know, that's frankly one of the reasons that bishops no longer hear the confessions of priests. They won't hear the confessions, um, maybe except in the deathbed or something, but they don't want to be put into that position. So uh, this is something that is very important. Um, you have to protect the seal, but we also have to encourage the penitent, whether it's a priest or anybody else, to do what's right, take responsibility, and begin 
doing the correctives necessary uh, to, to change things and change their lives. So that's as much as we, we can do. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. Welcome back. First, want to invite you to join me tomorrow night, Wednesday, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We will be speaking with the very Reverend Michael Summers, SVD, the Divine Word Father, about the history of St. Augustine Seminary and how this seminary affected the church in the United States. It was at one time, the only seminary that allowed African-American Catholics to come study for the priesthood. It's a great story. I've been to that place a lot of times, actually, and uh, look forward to that conversation. It was run by the uh, Divine Word Fathers, so it's uh, great to have him with us. All right, so we have a caller coming, calling in. We have Carol on the line. Carol, what can we do for you today? Yes, hello, Father, and thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm, I'm very blessed to be the mother of Matthew, and Matthew is a delightful and healthy 27-year-old man. Uh, he has intellectual and developmental disabilities that I would describe as being quite profound. Uh, even though Matthew is age 27, uh, typically he functions on the level of, say, a well, a three to a six-year-old, depending on sure. whatever the task or, or, or whatever is at hand. Uh, my question is this. My, my husband and I had Matthew baptized as a baby, and, of course, the years went by, and we were, uh, you know, became uh, cognizant of his, of his uh, disabilities. Uh, we, we know that Jesus loves him, and in fact, we know the Lord's carried Matthew on his shoulders all throughout his life and loves him, all sure. six foot six of Matthew. <laughs> uh, but but my, my question is this, uh, you know, while we've had him baptized, we've also always had a concern, and we've never heard this discussed anywhere. Uh, you know, Matthew did not receive uh, his communion, uh, he, you know, he because of his functioning level, um, you know, while we've discussed baby Jesus at Christmas and, and tried to tell him about the Lord, his, his cognitive level simply isn't such where he, you know, has, a, has an adult understanding. So when it comes to things like communion, we've always held him back because we just, we just knew that he wouldn't have the, you know, the understanding. Sure. Uh, so, but, but it comes down to this. Um, in, in the Church's opinion, uh, what, if any, eternal consequence would, would Matthew be vulnerable to uh, for the fact that he's had a lifelong absence uh, of receiving the body of Christ in communion? Mm -hmm. uh, a couple things. Uh, first of all, thank you for that, that call. It's an important question. And, of course, in most of the parishes I've been in, if not all of them, you know, there are people with various cognitive and developmental 
uh, issues that um, are, you know, able to come to communion. If, you know, we would expect uh, a minimum from such a person that, you know, they would love Jesus enough and want to receive Jesus. Do we expect them to be able to explain transubstantiation? No. But it sounds to me, Carol, as if your son may not even know much about what the love of Jesus means. Would that be correct? Say that's correct. Yeah, yeah. And here's the situation. If, that, if, if that's his level of cognitive ability, that also means that he is not able to commit a sin. He doesn't have enough reason to, be, to, to know right from wrong, or does he? No, I, I would say that's correct. I would say other than original sin, that, that's one of the things I've often said is, it, you know, God bless Matthew, that, that, that I don't think he's capable of sinning against the Lord. I, I, I right. don't think he's capable. And, you know, what, what I would do, uh, I, I assume that your pastor knows him. I mean, if there's a six-foot-six young man coming to, to <laughs> church... Uh, he would stand out in a crowd, I'm sure. He does indeed. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you may talk to your pastor and say, do, you know, given what you know about Matthew, um, do you think there'd be a minimal level of understanding uh, for him to be able to receive? And if not, you know, he can receive the blessing because uh, a, a priest, when he comes there, but that, that would be enough. And I don't think you have to worry about his immortal soul because he's been baptized, original sin is washed away, and he doesn't know enough about how to sin. As I, I'll never forget to this day, something that I learned 50, almost 50 years, 49 years ago, uh, when I was in Peru, uh, I was... Uh, in the marketplace, uh, this one family that came up to me and the pastor, and it, it started to chat, and they said, this is Pedro, he's our family saint. He was you know, severely enough uh, challenged mentally that he, they knew he didn't know how to sin, and so they just introduced him as the family saint because he can't commit sin. I think I would do the same with Matthew. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. That's a great comfort. And I can tell you, among the community, at least that I uh, circle uh, parents, this is a common question and a common concern because, of course, we love our children and, yeah. and we want the best for them, you know, here and in eternity. And it's a question that, that I, I will tell you that uh, many priests and, 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 and non-Catholic uh, clergy uh, they, they, they don't know how to answer it either. So, so I thank you for, uh, for stepping up and, and, and giving an answer, you know, so that we can feel comfortable and, and do the best, you know, best for them. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any. And you white, someday you'll meet him in heaven. And he'll probably end up a good talker. You watch. We have John on the line. Hello, John. What can we do for you? Is he there? 
Oh, hello, John. What can we do for you? Just heard about the declaration for the blessing of people in irregular relationships. Yes. If uh, you think that that will help in regard to reducing sex abuse in the future or do the opposite. Thank you. Yeah, John, that's... um, By irregular relationships, I assume that you mean... Um, people who are, say, divorced and remarried, or people who are living together without ever having been married. Um, those are irregular relationships. Um, uh, and, of course, same-sex relationships would be in that same category. And I think, um, you know, I bless people when they come up uh, in the communion line. Uh, I do that on a regular basis. Um, There are a number of people who know that because their relationship, whether divorced, remarried, or living together, they know they are not eligible to receive Holy Communion because they are objectively in the state of mortal sin, not in the state of grace. But they come and ask for a blessing. And I give them a blessing. I, there, there's no, you know, formal thing. I just, just as I do with uh, little children when they come up, they're not old enough for Holy Communion yet. I give them a blessing. People who are in irregular relationships, give them a blessing. We're in a state of sin, give them a blessing. And it's nothing formal. And I just, uh, I think part of this will be in the clergy giving a good education on this issue rather than let people sit with what the press says about it. Uh, The press says, well, the church uh, approves of blessing gay unions. It's not quite the case. Um, But we pray for a blessing so that they can come to God's mercy and seek God more and maybe with the hope that they'll find themselves in a regular relationship, the state of grace, again, by repenting whatever might be sinful and moving toward greater virtue. The, the same question, by the way, came up with from Tad in West Haven, Connecticut. Uh, he says, Father Mitch, I don't want to punish gay people. Good. Nor ban them from our faith. Good. However, this declaration by the Pope and the timing of it are more than troubling. Can we be very, very honest here? I hope so. The vast majority of LGBT folks will interpret this declaration not as an expression of pastoral closeness without condoning their sexual uh, relations, but as a confirmation of their lifestyle. I don't even understand what this expression of pastoral closeness means. Why does this have to even warrant an action by the Pope? Is it because of the incessant pressure of the secular world, most notably the more progressive European bishops, demanding clarification on the topic of same-sex unions. This feels like a precursor to more LGBT acceptance in the church. Um, uh, uh, Overreaction, maybe, but when something doesn't feel right in your gut, no matter how it's explained, it's problematic. Tad. Um, First of all, I think this is uh, the, this document is a response to those 
uh, uh, bishops, especially in Germany, who have been pushing for uh, approval of same-sex unions. And this was a way of saying you can informally bless them. They can't be have wedding clothes on. This can't be uh, you know, done as part of a, after a wedding ceremony that they might have from the state or whatever. It is a simple, spontaneous blessing. Again, as I said, people come up to me in the communion line. They can't receive communion. They fold their hands. I give them a blessing. And it's, um, you know, it's the, the kind of thing that is trying to put a limit. I don't disagree with you that some people will try to push it. That has gone on uh, in some of the denominations with women's ordination to the diaconate, then to the priesthood, with gays in the ministry, gay marriages, et cetera, et cetera. They keep pushing. And, you know, I have to trust that they will, the Pope and them will put, you know, the, the limits very clearly. They have set the limits clearly. This is not approval of gay marriage or anything. But, but, um, you know, we want to pray that they find God's love and mercy and pray a blessing that they move toward it. There's no formal written blessing down. It's not a formal ceremony of any kind. And any priest who tries to go beyond that would be disobeying what the Pope said. Okay? We'll have to work on it. Lord, bless all of you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, this network is brought to you by you keeping us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill so that we can pay all of our bills too. God bless you and thank you.